Howdy, this is Jim Rutt, and this is The Jim Rutt Show. Listeners have asked us to provide pointers to some of the resources we talk about on the show. We now have links to books and articles referenced in recent podcasts that are available on our website. We also offer full transcripts. Go to jimrutshow.com. That's jimrutshow.com. Today's guest is Aiden Connor. Aiden is a professional craft brewer with a strong interest in our food systems. As regular listeners know, we talk about food systems from time to time on the Jim Rutt Show. So welcome, Aiden. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Jim. Yeah, so talk maybe uh, talk a little bit about craft brewing. How long have you been doing that? I've been doing it for about eight years now. I've brewed at various scales. The first place that I was brewing at was technically like a nano brewery. So I was essentially brewing 10 gallons at a time for a very thirsty public that was constantly frustrated that I was running out of beer. And at this point, I'm actually at a regional craft brewery, which does, it's kind of like the larger scale on the craft scene. So we do wider distribution. We deal with contracts for brewing different kinds of beverages, everything from seltzer to wine to, you know, I I make hundreds of gallons of pickle brine for one of the things that we make. Yeah. (laughs) It's not everyone's cup of tea, but yeah, it's been interesting because in the time that I've been a part of the industry, uh, I've been able to see it evolve in terms of the technologies that are available, the, the kinds of businesses that have grown out from the initial stages of craft beer and definitely gave me a different kind of perspective, a background, almost like a back of house perspective on the food system. Well, it's always good. Now, it's interesting. I've always been a beer drinker. Started out my career in my hometown. It was, you were either a Budweiser man or a Schlitz man. And I sure. was and I was a resolute Budweiser man, you know. <laughs> probably till I was 35, 90% of the beer I drank in my life was Budweiser. And then Fair enough. gradually started developing somewhat more elevated tastes. Around 1990, I think I got into the craft brew scene. There was a fair bit in the D.C. area where I was living at the time. You know, they weren't a lot, but they were, that was that first little pop in the microbrewery scene. And also, oddly, yeah. uh, one of my business partners was an advisor to Jim Cook at Sam Adams. And he was actually no on kidding. the original tasting panel for the regu- original Sam Adams. <laughs> so I did have little Sam Adams back in the mid-'80s when, uh, when he and I were working together. But it's interesting. Over the last, you know, number of years, I do. We do. My wife and I do have an investment in a local mid-sized craft brewer. We also have an investment in a small but very excellent cidery, and so we remain interested nice. in this as a category. But my own tastes have kind of moved on. You know, I found that the craft brews have just gotten too extreme. An awful lot of them. You know, the alcohol contents are seven percent. Pickle fucking brine, fruit in the goddamn <laughs> beer. What the fuck's all this shit, right? And so I've gone back old school. About 90% of the beer I drink now is German beer, typically from Bavaria, you know, which, oh, yeah. is, which is made by the purity laws. Only three things allowed in it barley, water, and yeast, I think. That's it, right? Yeah. So it's, it's funny. It's actually so the Reinheitsgebot actually had to be modified when they discovered the existence of yeast. So they had originally only had water, malted grain, so typically barley, but they also allowed wheat, malted wheat as well, and hops. But oh, yeah, that's right. those Forget three, hops, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the other, the other other reason I like 
I like the German beers is they're light on the hops, right? Especially the Southern German beers. The Bavarian beers are, there's a little hops in them, but they're not heavy on the hops. Even if you go over the border into the Czech Republic and go over and get the classic Pilsners, which I also like, like Budva, which oh, yeah. was the original Budweiser. Uh, and that's actually a really good full-bodied beer, but it's more hopsy than the Bavarians. But I like those too. But So yeah, these days, unfortunately, it's about an hour's drive, 45-minute drive over the mountain to a store that's got a fairly good selection of German beer. So I go over there every couple of months, buy four or five cases. And uh, nice. that's mostly where I'm like last night we went, my wife and I went out to dinner we did drink some local craft beer it was a nice full-bodied brown ale but mm. I'm kind of done with IPAs you know they, they just you know it's like California Cabernets they used to be 12% alcohol now they're 15 and a half 16 these craft these IPAs they used to be 5% now they're 6.7 and 14 yeah. buck, bucket loads of hops in them bah! <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, it's unfortunate too because like this kind of extremification of all of the beer styles is something that does have environmental impacts as well. Like, you know, we have to we we make a lot of hazy IPAs at the brewery where I am and you wouldn't believe the, just the pounds and pounds and pounds of hops that we dump into each one of these beers and it's it's basically a form of waste all the way across the board. So if you if you consider how much water is actually required to grow the hops in the first place, that's a that's a huge level of the the waste that's going into resource use that's going into growing those hops. And then the processing itself, they have to have these massive processing facilities and then, you know, we we dump them into these beers, just kind of think of it in terms of the price point, which is was fair enough as far as like a small business concern, but you know, I, I just, I cringe when I watch all of the, all this, these hops basically going down the drain after, yeah. after their use, you know. That's a shame, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, frankly, I do sometimes wonder if all this hops is really because people like it or is it a macho thing? I've got a 5 billion bitterness rating, right? There's always <laughs> some of that in, you know, in any, in any kind of product that becomes sort of semi-elite, right? Oh yeah. Yeah, for sure. And like, it's, it, there's, there's like a, it's almost like a, it is a competition to be able to outdo other brewers as far as like, you know, how much flavor can we pack into this beer is the idea or what kind of crazy stuff are we going to be able to do with this? Like we, we actually had a, a crunch, a contract to make a beer that not kidding, had, had pudding in it, it had us put pudding in it. Vile. <laughs> it's funny. My journey to German beers has also gotten me to appreciate Budweiser again. Cause, oh, sure. Because Budweiser is sort of like a cheap, watered-down version of good German or Czech beer. Yeah. It is fairly straightforward. It doesn't have a bunch of shit in it. And it's perfectly drinkable. So in a pinch, I'd definitely yeah. go back to my roots. I'd rather drink Budweiser than most craft beers these days. But I would prefer a Czech or a German beer. Yeah, there's a there's a big connection there as far as like the brewing history, the beer history behind that, the style similarity. But there's also so the difference when it comes to American macro lagers is that they tend to have what are called adjuncts in them. So they don't just have like the barley and the the hops and and the water and the yeast. They usually also have flaked rice or flaked corn, which is a practice that was originally started just because of the cost savings that you can obtain from using those adjuncts as opposed to the barley. Malting barley is actually like a very high grade of grain 
to try to grow. So they have extremely high standards when you go into a malting facility. If there's any, they, they have like a laboratory testing that is conducted before any malt is received into the facility at all to be able to make sure that they don't have any kind of, I think it's ergot is the, is the, oh, yeah. uh, the yeah. big one that they look for. Um, yeah. But there's also other kinds of, they, they test for all sorts of stuff basically. And so it, there's, it's, it's not infrequent for malt, for grain to be rejected from a malting facility. So it's a, it's a high risk kind of crop for, for farmers to try to grow. Yeah, it's interesting when we were driving around Ireland, we noticed that like half the farmland in Ireland's growing barley, right? Yeah, because yeah. I think Guinness is like 5% of the Irish GDP. It's something crazy like that. Not Logically. surprising. Anyway, let's move on. The reason why we decided to get together and chat a little bit is not beer, as much as I like beer and like <laughs> to talk about it, but rather Aiden's interest in our food system more broadly construed. So why don't you tell us a little bit about how you became interested in the bigger systematics of, of food from this kind of, you know, particular point of view from inside the beast. So my original interest in food is just as a, a food consumer, <laughs> but yeah, we all start there. Right. right. <laughs> so I, and I've always been interested in, in nature, environmentalism. It's, it's something that's kind of compelled me since I was very young. It's not something that was granted to me from my parents. They didn't share my concerns. But what was interesting for me is to see that like even with beer as a product, which is essentially like fermented for shelf stability, you still find dynamics in the distribution and production and distribution of beer where you end up with beer old enough that it actually has to be thrown out. And so to me, there, this was like uh, so perplexing to see over and over again. And even in the small places where I was brewing, you would find this dynamic recurring over and over again. I would try to point it out to the owners to say, hey, like maybe we should scale back production on this or that, or maybe we should consider eliminating this style or this recipe in particular because it tends to end up being wasted. And so we, you know, maybe we should not make that so much. And a lot of times what ended up happening is the answer I would get was, well, you know, I had, I had so-and-so, there's, there's a couple of guys at the bar who come in and, and they, just, they, they just won't buy any other beer other than that particular one. So we have to keep it on tap for this handful of customers. And to me, this is like a, a microcosm of the dynamic of the food system overall. We have this obsession with the idea that every single individual consumer should be able to walk into a grocery store at any given moment and have access to any kind of particular food item that they feel like, regardless of the season, regardless of locality, regardless of, of any other factors, whether or not it's it's closer to spoilage. Basically, the, the food system as is has, has adjusted by pricing in the waste instead of trying to address the waste itself. So for me, a lot of my, my interest in terms of addressing food waste overall had to do with trying to imagine, like with beer alone, if I were to try to structure a facility, structure a, a way of, 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 of selling and distributing beer such that it minimized the waste, what would that look like? And you know, so over the years, this has just kind of slowly evolved into something that was much bigger than just considering what to do with, with beer, but also what to do with combining essentially like food and beverage production and distribution to be able to minimize the amount of waste across, across the board. And the amount of waste is non-trivial. Could you tell us a little bit no. about how much food is wasted in our food system? 
So the estimates vary depending on country to country. And so the, the first thing to point out is that this is not simply a United States only big bad consumerist culture issue. Uh, this is actually something that crosses into the UK, Germany, France, Australia is one of the worst in terms of food waste. And essentially the range is between 30 to 50% are the estimates. And this is not like factoring in the kinds of things that people think of are, are like, oh, this is just from scraps or whatever. No, this is, this is finished food. This is food that is ready to be consumed. About 30 to 50% goes into the trash. How about during the supply chain? How much waste is there there? I know in, in, you know, in poorer countries, sometimes as much as half of it gets eaten by mice and rats and, and lost and spoiled and that kind of stuff. Do you, have, do you have ideas on how much waste there is in the production chain? Now, when I was looking into this, I was actually surprised to see that there, the level of waste in the production stream itself is actually lower than you might expect. Whereas what you see is that the massive amounts of waste end up happening in grocery stores and actually in home refrigerators. So that, that 50%, so half of the food is being uh, approximately half of the food that is wasted is food that's spoiling in home refrigerators and approximately half of the, the other half of the food that's being wasted is from restaurants and grocery stores. Mm. So that dynamic to me tells me that there's a huge mismatch between what people actually want to consume and what they are consuming. Now, the, the other kind of like interesting stat that I've come across is that apparently 60% of the food consumed in the United States falls under the category of a fourth tier level of processing, of food processing. Now, when you when you think of fourth, so there's there's a system that was introduced in 2009, referred to as the Nova classification for food processing, and it was meant to kind of help to be a little bit more specific about what do we mean by food processing. There's like a lot of different ways that we process and don't process our food. So the fourth tier is ultra processed food, which actually has the added flavors colors and preservatives that are typical of, of uh, shelf-stable foods, Sh- foods that are meant to be packaged and then sit on a grocery store shelf for an forever, amount of time. Right? Forever, <laughs> yeah. right? The, yeah. uh, you know, Cheetos or something like that, right? Right, <laughs> right, right. And so if you consider 60% of the food is is that kind of food, and then- Oh, that's interesting. I, yeah, so the right? loss rate in the stuff that's not must be astronomical. Yes. Were you yes. able to actually get any data on that of the stuff that's not designed to last for 200 years and through a nuclear winter? You know, <laughs> what percentage of that is wasted? But if you run the numbers in my head, if you say it's 40% and it's all in the 40%, it's got to be, you know, most of it's probably wasted. Most of it. Most of it. Yes. So, so what the, the big conclusion that I have arrived at, my big hypothesis at this point is that in today's world, in today's society, we require processed food. And the, the, the big issue at hand, if you accept that, <laughs> is how are we processing food and how are we distributing food to maximize how healthful it is and to minimize the environmental impact of that food system. And as far as I can tell, everything about the dynamics of the distribution of food at this scale 
is going to constantly push our food in the direction of that fourth tier level of processing. It's just not, it, 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 unfortunately, it, we are dealing with a perishable product. And so the more disconnect that we have between what I would think of as like metabolic communities and the actual environment in which they live, the more we're going to kind of see this dynamic of a fourth tier food processing. So my goal in terms of the system that I'm trying to design is to try to create what I'm, what I'm referring to as unintentional communities, which are geographically located within proximity and are really about trying to maximize the communal freedom of choice when it comes to the food supply. Right now, people don't have that. You, you basically, like I, I, I talk with my mother who lives in Provo, Utah, which is a big college town. You would think that there's all sorts of options when it comes to food there. But the grocery store, which is in a short drive of her, is abysmal. Um, she's never satisfied with the food there. The produce is always terrible. But what is she going to do? Is she going, like, what other option does she have? You know, for people in her position, she just kind of has to make do with what's what's being offered to her. And I don't, I, I don't think that she's unusual in that. I think this is a dynamic that repeats a lot across, um, at least across the United States, where these big grocery store chains set up shop and you just kind of have to accept whatever they have on the shelves and make do with that. So there's some, some communities, like some regions you'll find like a, a, a bigger small scale farming community. So there's, there's certain areas of the United States where people may be listening to this and thinking, well, ah, you know, I got all sorts of CSAs and the farmer's markets and places that I get to go to, to pick my food. And that's great. But when you start considering that as an alternative, the issue that I see is that these farmers are being worked down to the bone. <laughs> farmers who are trying to do that small scale and trying to do straight to market, straight to farmer's market, uh, CSA style distribution, it's such, a, it's such a huge burden on them to be able to manage both the planning and growing of the food as well as the, the distribution, marketing, sales of the food as well. Yeah, we know where we live, there are here in the Shenandoah Valley, and then I also have a farm to the west here. There are a lot of people working to try to, to you know, be a more local food chain, but you are right. They work their asses off, and if you actually tabulate all the hours they put in, it's not entirely clear to me they're making much more than a minimum wage and taking a bunch of risk on top of it. Right. And, cause you, and it's funny you mention this, because my, my daughter and son-in-law identified this about seven years ago, and they tried to put together a, just a micro-distribution network for these people. Math didn't work. We never launched it. You know, I was, I was sort of the numbers guy seeing, you know, could this work? And the answer was, eh, you're slicing the salami too thin, right? And mm. it, you know, there's something systemically wrong with the system. You know, one of the things we I, I identified, I learned a lot more about the food systems from, from this exercise is that these direct farm-to-table food systems, CSAs, farmers markets, et cetera, end up costing the consumer two and a half or three times what the equivalent food would cost at Walmart. Of course, it's not really the equivalent because it's better, but sure. you know, a pound of lettuce and a pound of lettuce is going to cost you two and a half or three times more to get it from the CSA than it would, would from Walmart. And that's okay for you know the top 10% of income makers in America, but for the mass of people, that kind of 
you know, huge increase in the price of their of their provisions is really a tough sell. So it's sort of a luxury good today. It's not an actual solution to the food system problem anyway. So, so I mean, that's one thing. Second, I want to go back to you. Did I did I hear you say you were advocating for a diet of Cheetos and canned pork and beans? <laughs> the amount of waste would be so much lower. Right, right. No, right. So, so that's that's that's. What <laughs> I didn't you know. think that's what you meant, but one could infer that from what you said. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So, right. So that's that's the big issue, right? So the question is, if you can design your distribution network such that you minimize the time that is between the farm and the delivery to the ultimate consumer, you can avoid all sorts of processing requirements that otherwise would need to take place. So in order to to minimize the amount of processing, that time between the farm and the table needs to be minimized as well. And so when I'm talking about processing, for the most part, we're talking about essentially prep to cook type processing. So this isn't too far, this is not too far removed from services like Blue Apron or HelloFresh and places like that. They typically will kind of design recipes that they then put together the exact ingredients, amount of ingredients that you need to be able to prepare it. And then you take those ingredients and you cook it fresh at home. And a lot of the the concept behind that is basically, you know, it's a win-win-win because you're you're getting fresher food in the first place. You're minimizing the amount of time that you have to to like devote to actually making the meal and making the meal is kind of streamlined because they they're they're doing some hand holding for you. So a lot of it a lot of it, the the processing is just going to be something along those lines but I think in in the long run what needs to happen in terms of uh, supporting small scale farming is that we also need to have small scale processing. So that's that's really the bottom line of it. So if you're going to have a decentralized farming system, then you also need a decentralized processing system. And to me, that is the, the big missing link in all of this is that we've been constantly trying to connect farmers directly with consumers when that is just not where our society is at this time. We're too far removed from the, the skills and the uh, resource requirements to be able to facilitate that. Now, when it comes to like the food cost itself, one of the things that I, I feel strongly is that if we were able to funnel food and beverage through the same facility and make this into a communal network, that you could use the extremely high profit margins on those kind of extras that people might purchase. Like say they have a we have a beer CSA in addition to a food CSA that beer CSA can help to soften the required cost from the customer for food, if that makes sense. So those who have the excess can spend it in, a, in the same place as people who do not necessarily have the funds to be able to afford that high of a quality of food. Now, it's interesting. Some things like that started to form up in our area during COVID. There was, became a kind of joint CSA where four producers were basically joining together and you'd come on Fridays and get your box and you'd get stuff from all four of them. Mm-hmm. And one of them was a cidery. So you'd get a, a bottle of cider if you had check, checked the box that you wanted the cider. That was kind of cool. Another one was a chicken razor. Another was a greens kind of thing, you know, lettuce, and that kind of stuff. 
various salad greens. The guy's really a brilliant salad. You, know, you, know, you could be a brilliant artiste of salad greens, as it turns out. And this guy <laughs> was. And then the the fourth was a diversified vegetable farmer. So you know, I don't know what their back what their back room deal was amongst them, but certainly the profit margin on the cider was a hell of a lot higher than the profit margin on green beans was. And whether they were cross-subsidizing each other, I don't know. But let's also talk about the issue of price. Because you know, again, when I talk to people in the local market movement, they're always frustrated by the fact that Americans pay so little for their food, mm. right? In fact, I dug up some data this morning. Back in 1961, Americans spent about 19% of their disposable income on food. In 2021, it was about 10%. And further, food expenditure away from home, i.e. restaurants, et cetera, has remained remarkably consistent at around 4%, 4.5% since 1961 to the present day. It hasn't changed much, amazingly. Mm-hmm. While the at-home food part of the budget has gone from 14% down to approximately in 2021. Mm, And so we are paying a lot less for our food on a relative basis compared to all the other shit we buy uh, than we used to. Now, on the other hand, you know, uh, this is where capitalism and the multipolar trap gets out of control, where if you're in a category selling cornflakes and you want to pay your people twice the the wages and pay the farmers more for good, high-quality organic corn – your cornflakes are going to be twice as expensive, and you ain't, nobody's going to buy them, right? So unfortunately, sure. late-stage financialized capitalism has produced this, on one hand, remarkable thing that this is the, the best fed people on earth. In fact, as we know, over half of us, including me, are overfed, right? Because the food machine has been so optimized by money on money return that it can produce a shitload of food for a small amount of money. And that's even including all the waste you talked about. So that's right. you know, even more amazing. And But if you really wanted to be able to produce CSA-quality food for everybody, probably the price would go up, maybe by a factor of two or close to it, and we'd be back to 1961 market share, you know, wallet share, you know, 18 or 19 percent. What do you think about that? Oh, yeah, it's a serious issue, and I I do get frustrated sometimes when people start talking about the food system and they don't consider that just how desperate some people already are when it comes to their finances and then to consider – you know, oh, well, it's just going to be a little bit more expensive. Well, maybe just a little bit more expensive for you, but it might be cost prohibitive for most other people. And so my my main feeling is that there's just so much glut in the system as it is that I, I do feel strongly that if we were to create these networks that are relatively local, you're going to make such a more efficient uh, use of all of the resources that you are using that you would be able to offer your service for a much lower price because they're, you're not pricing in for their levels of waste. And that, that goes for the individual consumer as well. So like even though people are only spending so little on their food as it is, if they're still wasting about half of what they are spending, if they aren't wasting all of that, then they could get higher quality and waste less and maybe break even is is what I'm hoping. I'm, I'm hoping that there's a way to make this so that it's efficient enough that 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 the additional 
quality that you're getting. You get is, it for free. That'd be yeah, great. You get it for free. <laughs> uh, well, I'll tell you, it's not the way it is today, right? If you go to yeah. the farmer's market, you sign up for a CSA, it's going to cost you two to two and a half times what it costs you at Walmart, three times for some things. Yeah. What would you see that's needed in the area of infrastructure to make it efficient enough so that small local producers can, can basically do literal farm to table at the household mm-hmm. level at a price that's comparable? I, I always said 25% above Walmart would be a mass phenomenon. You're not going to get the uh, welfare mothers, but you're going to get a lot of middle-class people at Walmart plus 25%. What is needed in terms of systematics to make that happen? So really it's about coordination. Like I think we have a, we have a coordination problem when it comes to the planning that farmers do for what they're going to be growing and the people who are actually going to be purchasing and consuming the food. So it's really about just creating a network where all of, all of the planning and execution is happening within what I refer to as like a metabolic community. So there's four layers of choice that would kind of go into it when it comes to the, the coordination. The first thing is that I think that any, any systemic, you know, decentralized system will probably start with some kind of a, a community constitution so that would lay the groundwork as far as how, how all, of, all of the parts of the system are going to work together. So every community can kind of decide the, the, the nitty gritty details for themselves. And that to me would include things like, I think that there should be essentially groups of people who are, are, are making decisions about the pay rate of people who are working within the system. So if you're, if you're thinking geographically, like you can almost like sidestep minimum wage concerns and things like that by by making agreements about this in the constitution itself. So that's just like kind of one example of that. You could also have overall overarching land use standards that are a part of a constitution in that way. So you could say, all right, well, you know, absolutely zero uh, glyphosate, none, none, none in the system, zero. Or you could say absolutely no plastic packaging, no packaging of that sort in the system at all. So that's that's kind of like the the highest layer, highest level of decision making and coordination. And then the next level down, and this is like where you're kind of connecting the farmers really directly with the community would be to establish yearly crop contracts with farmers. So to me, there needs to be like some kind of system to be able to help people who are interested in farming to actually become farmers without having to do the the marketing and selling themselves. And a contract that actually determines a price per pound, an agreement in terms of uh, how much the community is going to essentially pay for the farmer to plant in the first place, and some kind of a stipulation as far as like a, a substitute for crop insurance, essentially, would be built into a seasonal contract like that as well. Yeah, I was going to mention that, that farming is a damn risky business and dependent on, you know, rainfall and pests and all kinds of stuff. And uh, further, if we know anything about the insurance business, you need some scale to make insurance work, right? And particularly, you need uncorrelated risk. And so, for instance, if you had a the equivalent of a crop insurance program in a local region, say in a county, there's going to be a high correlated risk around both weather and pests. And so sure. that might be a problem. You might have to build a yeah. higher level abstraction to spread the risk over a, a wider uh, weather and, you know, and pest system. I think that's an important point. Yeah, that makes a lot, that, that, that's a really good point. Definitely. I think that there's 
a network of networks that I'm kind of picturing, like more like a web when it comes to this. So one of the things that I do, I do like to say as a heuristic is don't let the perfect be the enemy of your food. Ah, that's a good one. That's a good one. I like that. <laughs> so that, that's really what's driving a lot of, a lot of what this system ends up looking like. Uh, you know, that's, that's part of why, for example, I'm, I'm point, trying to point out to people that we might actually need food processing, for example. Oh, we certainly do. For instance, we have in our local community, very remote, lowest population density east of the Mississippi River, about 10 years ago, a group of us, my wife and I included, came together and established a local slaughterhouse, for instance. Right? Mm, yeah. And, yeah. And there's been some talk from time to time about other kinds of local food processing. You know, some of these great farm wives have these amazing stews and soups. I thought that you could, if you could find some way for them to supervise or provide their recipes to a little packing plant in the area, yep. that would be a hell of a thing, right? And they'd be Absolutely. shelf-stable to your West. You know, if you, if you bought all the vegetables, put them in your crisper, you know, 50% of them are going to go bad. Well, unfortunately, soup, you can just use some pretty grungy shit to make soup, but <laughs> if it's already been processed and and canned in the, you know in a glass jar, uh, it's going to be self shelf stable for a couple of years at least. And so there, some of the waste kind of goes away. So I'm with you there. And of course, that used to be much more common. And in fact, mm. in the area just north of here, there was a vast tomato packing industry. And I was surprised mm. to find that up until the '60s, there was dozens, maybe hundreds of small canneries that actually ran canning lines and, and made their own branded tomatoes. Some of them were bespoke where they put somebody else's label on it. And actually a huge variety of canned tomatoes back in the 50s and 60s that came from the northern Shenandoah Valley. So it is possible, but yeah. unfortunately the economics point the other way. Because let's talk about you know time to market and freshness of produce. Who's got the best produce in, of the big chains? Costco, it turns out, you know, when you you buy stuff, at, you know, you know, get my wife's really good at keeping an eye on this. You know, whose produce lasts the longest, right? Mm. When you, if you buy a head of lettuce or if you buy an avocado or something, whose will last the longest? And and also, it's but also how close are they to ripe? Also, it's an interesting trap. Costco does sure. the best job of anybody, and they're huge and vast, right? So this is a case where economies of scale turn out to solve that problem, and it's going to be a real uphill fight against you know friction and economics and everything else to get that level of speed to market. I don't know how the hell they do it. You know, get stuff from California to Virginia in two days or three days. It you know can't be cheap, but their prices are lower than anybody else's too. So yeah. scale, unfortunately, is one of the ingredients to solve these problems. And if we go back to local, I don't know. I don't think we're going to do it for ten percent of the. Of the wallet, is what I'm point, what, what I'm saying, and I do sure. like your idea of a constitution, very much like our game B idea of a proto B, where we mm-hmm. we decide that this community has a rule, you know, as you said, no glyphosate, you know, no GMOs. Oh, actually, I think GMOs are probably okay, but let's just say yeah. that you could say no GMOs. <laughs> but that, and that, there's you know, there's arguments on both sides. Maybe we could have a series of agreements, but you could also have an agreement that all the most of the food is going to be grown locally, and we're going to dedicate ten to fifteen percent of our labor force to growing it. Right? That would be radically different than today. Day, where it's one or one percent or less actually in the farming and another half a percent in processing and sure so there's a, there's a way around it but that's in within a membrane you can do that within a membrane sure. but until everybody lives in a membrane the people outside the membrane are going to be subject to the coercive force of money on money return financialized economics and you're going to end up with Costco being able to do a better job than your loosely coupled network of local producers. Sure. I mean, and, and like places like Costco, this is, again, don't let the perfect be the enemy of your food. 
if they've got a system that's working well, then I don't have a problem with that necessarily. I do worry when it comes to systems like that. I, I start to wonder about labor up the chain, like where, what are they paying people to be able to do the labor, to be able to get the food at that price um, and distributed at that, at that scale and at that rate. So that's, that's like one of my, my big concerns about something like that. Aside from that, like I, I, in theory, I don't have an issue with, with the mass distribution if it's actually working. And I also think that it brings strength to any resilience to any localized system if they have if they remain in contact with a distributed system. So I don't I, I, I think that the, the a big concern to me would be people attempting to do a, a strictly local food system. I think there's just inherent risk to that, just like you were saying in terms of the concerns about having a localized, essentially a local, localized uh, insurance program, crop insurance program that you're you're not diversifying the risk yeah, you're not going to grow very, you're not going to grow very many oranges in northern minnesota i can tell you right, that right 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 so so i think that there's a way that we can kind of get the both, best of both worlds where like i think we need to reconsider what we consider local <laughs> so we we exist at multiple scales at this point we have yes we have the local level and i think that when it comes to perishable items it makes the most sense to be able to try to keep those items local. But I think that we can try to grow towards something that feels more like a spice trade, where we have foods that are not necessarily capable of being grown in a local area, being distributed there to add in variety, to add in flavor and, and diversity into the food supply. And I think, you know, if you were to do something like a 70% local to 30% distributed, I think that's a good ratio to try to shoot for within any particular membrane. I think the isolationism of trying to go 100% is is a problem in yeah. itself. And I will say that's a game B principle as well. Uh, okay. The membranes need to be semi-permeable, and it becomes right. then a cultural issue on how much import and export you want and in what categories. You, as you say, you might, for instance, say anything that we can grow locally at reasonable productivity, we mm-hmm. will. But we're not going to try to grow oranges in a greenhouse in northern Minnesota because it's nuts, right? The yeah, amount of energy, it's more wasteful. The, the <laughs> amount of energy that you'd produce would be crazy. Uh, let's revisit an item you'd mentioned in passing, which again is a, a systematic result of late stage financialized capitalism, which is the squeeze on wages in the production chain. Again, something I happen to know about. When we first moved here, bought our farm in 1989, a couple of years later, I was invited to invest in a turkey processing co-op where the, a big firm was getting out of the turkey processing in the region and was agreed to sell the plant, a huge plant, to the farmers who produced all the turkeys. And they got, got together and they invited some friends to come in. I ended up not investing in it for different reasons. Turned out it was, would have been a good investment. But I did learn what the wages were. And they were paying mm-hmm. those people pretty good in those days. And they were all, at the time, 1990, 91, native-born Americans, about half black and half white. And I think they were making... 10 or $11 an hour, which in 1989 was pretty good. It was That would have been about four times minimum wage. Now, 30 years later, they're paying them about, well, at least pre-COVID, I don't know, the, the wages may have gone up. They were paying them 13 or $14 an hour, which is half in real terms what they were making wow. in 1989. And essentially 100% of them are recent immigrants from mostly Mexico and Central America. And 
it's said, I don't know this to be a fact, that many of them are illegal. Don't know that to be a fact. But anyway, in real terms, wages have come down 50% through the ratchet of financialized capitalism. And then, frankly, it's a multipolar trap. If the other plants that make turkeys were still hiring native-born American labor and paying them twice the price, their turkey would be more expensive and nobody would buy it. So if one person sure. goes to you know squeeze the labor cost to the bare minimum they possibly can by exploiting immigrants, Everybody else has to respond, and again, you know, it's a really it's it's a classic coordination problem where you need to have some larger, overarching, as you called it, constitution that people mm. agree not to do that because because right? otherwise, competition forces you to follow the, the the most extreme actors in the category. Yeah, and I, you know, this is it's a dynamic that I I think that's like another way that the membrane can kind of be helpful in this case. Like if you're if you're actually thinking about the wages in terms of the actual living costs of where you are geographically, I think that that's a better way of trying to design the system and having the direct connection between the actual costs and the price of it for the consumer. Again, I think I think will add to the efficiency enough so that there it'd be possible to be able to have those higher wages. You know, the one thing to consider is I I do because I've been on like the production side and in the beer industry, I I do think that there's a lot of a lot of opportunity here to be able to attract more people by just making better work quality. <laughs> you know, the larger the larger the scale that you're working, the more automated your job is, the less interesting it is. And one of the one of the big concerns that I have in particular when it comes to the animal agriculture industry is that I think it's I think it's kind of terrible to expect any individual to spend the 8 hours, let's say, a day that they're working at their job killing animal after animal after animal for years on end. I don't know if that's like a really good way of of structuring the labor when it comes to animal agriculture. I think like if you were to reduce the scale and spread out that kind of work, people would be more likely to partake in it and the overall overall quality of those jobs would would increase by a huge amount. That's a good point. Our local at our local slaughterhouse, yeah, there was definitely not a dedicated kill person. They'd yeah. only they'd only kill you know, two or three animals a day, right? And so mm-hmm. the, the actual killing might have taken a total of 20 minutes, right? And those right. people those people then went back to the line and did the cutting, right? Right. And so they, they had a diversified job with more variety in their work. Yeah. You know, if, if, if just yeah. sitting there shooting hogs in the head all day, that'd get that'd get One old after real the next. quick. I mean, there's there's all sorts of statistics when it comes to the labor force related to slaughterhouses being like having extremely high rates of domestic abuse. It does something to people to do that kind of work day in and day out. And, you know, I don't I, I, I don't have an issue with with consuming animals. I think that we need to make a space to be able to have an animal agriculture industry. But it just needs a, a total restructuring and reimagining of what that would actually look like. Yep. But again, that's going to raise the prices it, it, unless you can magically find enough waste in the system. And I will say the slaughterhouse, there's very little waste. That's that stuff sure. is used. You know, the, the scraps are sold to people to make sausages with the uh, bones sold to the fertilizer plant to make bone meal. The blood is sent to someplace else to make a supplement for chicken food, I think. So, mm-hmm. you know, there's you know, essentially uh, the guts are sold to a company called Valley Protein 
<laughs> that processes the guts and turns it into protein. God knows, I don't want to know what it's being used in, but uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, hey, there ain't much waste at a slaughterhouse. I can tell you from a personal experience. That's there. Well, we're getting up close to our time here. Let's go to the the other half of the waste. We talk about the system, the distribution systems. Uh, what can people do to to eliminate the waste inside their own house? Because you said half of the waste is the stuff that people throw away. Now, I know we don't throw away anything. I bet we don't throw away more than 5 or 10% of the food at our house. But my wife is really astute at freezing. You know, if, 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 she often cooks bigger sets of stuff that we're going to need to consume and she'll mm-hmm. chop it up and freeze it right and then we'll have it for lunch a couple of weeks later or as, as we were talking about you know nasty vegetables have gotten a little brown around the edge throw them in a the pot make throw in a chicken carcass make some soup but i think she's probably atypical in how little we waste at our house not not to say we don't waste some you know particularly i'd say fruits that go bad There's not much mm. you can do with a you know an orange that's uh, gotten gone rotten but what are, sure. what are some things that you would recommend for people to reduce the the waste inside the four walls of their house? The big, the big thing that comes up typically is to have a plan for the food before you buy it. So if you have a if you have any particular week, you're looking at the week ahead, before you go to the grocery store, if you were to sit down and decide, all right, you know, Monday night this, Tuesday that, Wednesday this, Thursday that, Friday this, you know, go down the line, make decisions about what the meals are going to be. Come up with a, basically a shopping inventory for what you're going to look for at the store and execute it. It's as simple as that. <laughs> and I'm saying that sarcastically. <laughs> yeah, it's extremely difficult. And this is, this is kind of my point about, about the whole thing. Like, I think that there's a lot, of, a lot of people who are like your wife when it comes to being able to plan and think ahead. And, and then, you know, when plans don't come through, you have a backup plan and then you have a backup plan for your backup plan. And I think that that's like fantastic when people have the skill set to be able to do that and they have the, the time and energy to be able to do that. In the same way that I, I appreciate when people have their own home gardens, like I think it's better to have your own home garden and do your own stuff at your house if you possibly can. But yeah, I think, I think that the, the cards are kind of stacked up against people uh, when it comes to reducing the waste in their own house. It's, if you can find a way to plan ahead, then do so. And if you can be creative about, about what you do with the stuff that's about to go bad, then, then you should do so. But really, like, I, I think that, I don't know, creating, creating a system where the food is, is more fresh in the first place will do a lot of the work of, of preventing the food waste in the first place. Just making sure that, that by the time that it ends up in your refrigerator, it, it isn't already, you know, past two weeks after it was harvested. Yeah. And I will say, you know, there are some changes in the food systems that are working against that. Uh, again, in our area, very remote, there are no grocery stores. The only place you can buy any food at all is either a country store or even worse, Dollar General, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> and that and that stuff is, you know, right at the edge of its sell-by date. If you buy milk at the Dollar General, you better use it in, in a week or you're done. If you buy it at the uh, from the from the dairy, it's an hour's drive away, to buy it straight from the dairy, shit, it'll last a month easy, right? Sure. And so when you get pushed into food deserts and you're buying stuff at 
Dollar General. That's the other end. That's that's. I think they must be buying stuff from the you know the big national chains that uh, is getting close to its expiration yeah. date, and then pushing it out. And so 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 I, so a tactic at least is take a look at the dates on stuff. Right. Of course, you can't do it for fresh produce because it's not dated. But milk, you can for sure. Uh, packaged goods, you can. I will say Dollar General. You know, look at your canned beans or your rice aroni. You'd be surprised how close they are to their expiration dates. Not that the, not that those expiration dates really mean anything. That's the other thing. I yeah. I have a friend who's a fanatic about the expiration dates, and I say, come on now, uh, you can easily go a year past on most of that stuff. You know, like, you know sure. things like canned beans, you know, rice aroni, spaghetti. That shit ain't going bad. You know, at worst, it might taste a little funky, but you're not even going to notice it. And frankly, it's a marketing scam by the uh, producers to get you to throw it out and buy more. So for yep. things that are inherently stable and safe, you know. Don't be too fanatic about the expiration dates, but also look at them when you when you can when you buy and to see if uh, if the channel that you're using is systematically like Dollar General pushing it right up to near expiration. Yeah, or it's yeah. Costco, who's the other extreme. You get the stuff from Costco, and it's got a long expiration date because they got a very efficient distribution channel. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I'm trying to think of like any other uh, any other kind of like tips that I would have and. It definitely, that's like a really big one. I think just not being as squeamish or don't don't necessarily assume that whatever that date says is accurate. I think that's really good advice for sure. And actually, like one of the big things that that brought up for me as well is is just the the issue of food safety is one of those things that I think we have the technology now to be able to reconsider how we think of food safety. And like, in fact, one of my... One of the, the types of technologies that I've seen come on online since I became a craft brewer is we can actually take samples from the beer and uh, place it into a, a desktop size device. It's no larger than one by two, one foot by two foot size device, which does genetic testing of the beer to be able to test for any kind of contaminants, any kind of microbiological activity that we were not intending to have happen. And frankly, I think that those kinds of uh, on-site testing systems would would add another layer to the savings that you would have and reduce that gap between the farm and the market somewhat. So I, I think like more accurate, more real-time food safety testing is is something that we can definitely use to be able to reduce the amount of food waste overall as well. Yeah, but I, would, I would add again, uh, use your freezer. You know, my as yeah. my wife is, and and you know, I do don't think she does all the cooking. I do some percentage cooking. She does most of it. You know, she's constantly freezing stuff. You know, and, you know, and you know, and I'd say, well, cook double doses and you know a lot of people you cook more than you eat they just throw it out or feed it to the dog or something if you actually have freezer space we have three freezers two full two big freezers plus the freezer compartment in our big refrigerator and so we you know which also allows us to do things like buy half a hog and you know yeah yeah. And when I hunting in the fall, when I kill a couple of deer, I get those processed. I used to process them myself before I got to be too old and arthritic to be able to do that <laughs> shit in cold weather. And so, you know, you put in uh, 50 pounds of deer meat in the freezer, you know, you, you don't waste any of it, right? It doesn't go yeah. bad. And so yeah. I would encourage people to think about their freezer as a strategic resource. I actually, like, I think we should be looking at freezers as, as food processing on the local scale as well, you know, before the consumer and... Like it's one of those one of those uh, 
engineering ideas that I've had when it comes to all of this is that we we could definitely use some technology that avoids the plastic use in the frozen vegetables, fruits and vegetables that we have. And the the main idea would be basically bulk bulk freezers that have nitrogen flushing uh, capacity. So that's that's like that's my big grand idea as far as how to try to maximize local food sources. Tell me a little bit more about this. It sounds interesting. What, when you say nitrogen flushing, what do you mean? That the, that the freezer itself would have a flush of nitrogen to kill any bacteria yes. in there? So the, the, the idea is like nitrogen is used in a lot of food packaging as an inert gas. Uh, oxygenation is one of the primary sources of food spoilage. Like that's the thing that will change the color of the food, that changes the flavor of the food. Everything reacts with oxygen. So most food processing involves the reduction or elimination of oxygen inside the package. Now, my thinking is that nitrogen is, is there are systems that like literally any draft, any draft system that you encounter at any brewery or bar may have a device in the back of house, which is literally pulling from the atmosphere, separating out nitrogen and compressing it for use in the draft draft system. Yeah, don't they have like nitro beer with nitrogen used in the process somehow? Yeah, they do that as well. And, and, and that's that's not as that's not as common. It's a uh, it's it's one of those it's it's a good inert gas because for for things like wine packaging because it actually takes an extremely high amount of pressure to be able to dissolve nitrogen into a liquid into any liquid, especially relative to CO two. So like. It's actually used in draft systems for long draw systems, so systems that require higher pressure. Ah, to push the stuff through because it won't push go it into through. yeah, it won't go into yeah, solution. Exactly. Yeah. But yeah. what's cool is that if you were to employ, like, if you were to to use that same technology in, let's say, like, I'm just picturing basically like a, a set of drawers that have gasket seals around them, and so you could fit like you know let's say, a, a pallet full of, of, of vegetables, of prepped vegetables inside of one single drawer. If you were to have a system that basically worked using two basically one-way valves, you'd have like the nitrogen be able to come in and flush out any of the ambient air every after every time that that drawer was opened and then closed again. Hmm. So to me, this would be a way of basically reducing. And, and I have a similar idea when it comes to the packaging as well. So reusable packaging could be structured so that you have mostly stainless, you might have glass, something along those lines, have a lid and then one-way valves on either end so that it, every single meal, basically as it was prepped, could go into one of these containers you could get nitrogen flushed um, so that it's it's basically as good of food uh, packaging as you would ever get. So, it, I mean, we we deal with like gaskets and seals like this all the time in my work, which is why, why it came to mind. And I think if you could do that, you could literally just bypass the use of plastics in, in food packaging completely. That's a very clever idea. I like that. <laughs> uh, I, I don't buy it's going to work at the container level, but the freezer or the, yeah. you know, the the drawer level that makes sense. I can't imagine people hooking a hose up to their to their little Tupperware and flushing. No, it no, no, no. Like I'm picturing this on the processing side. Oh, I so see. like okay. as yeah, so like as as meals were being prepped to cook, basically as it's packaged in these packages, this would be a way for for that. To extend, you know, somewhat the shelf life or shelf stability of what's inside of that package. And at that point, you know, it, I might as well, like, just mention briefly that part of that system would be internal distribution system, right? So, like, what I'm picturing is basically in within any geographic region, region where it's, like, within 10 minutes drive, you might have 
what would essentially be like a food shed. So you'd have like a little standalone building, very small, and basically all it would be would be a walk-in and a vestibule in front of it. Um, you might have like a, a camera to be able to do security on, on the access in and out of there. But the walk-in would have a series of lockers. And every time that you would go to, if you wanted to go pick up your food, you just, you know where you need to go, you'd go in pick it up, then when you are coming back to pick up your next meal, you would just return the container, basically. So yeah, it, it would basically be a closed loop distribution system to be able to, uh, I don't know, I, I in my mind, like if you have a way of avoiding like all the clutter in people's refrigerators in the first place, that might help a lot for, for reducing food waste. And, you know, I, I, I think like delivering food on someone's doorstep is like, is fine as like a quick fix, but I don't think that really is a long-term solution when it comes to food distribution. Yeah, particularly as we start moving to smaller houses, which we're going to need yeah. to do as we confront climate change. You know, typical 2,200 square foot American suburban house probably ends up someday <laughs> at, you know, 700 to 1,000 square feet. And by the yeah. way, I had a guest on my show, Jason Mock, on episode 131. I just looked it up. And he actually is building those things that basically where you kind of look like big safe deposit boxes. You yeah. go in and, and the CSAs. You know, they have comp you know, the digital combinations on the CSAs mm -hmm. could put the food in there mm -hmm. and they're refrigerated. They're not frozen, but they're refrigerated. And they, they have to be near power. And like he puts them on parking lots at Walmart and things like that. Not at Walmart. Walmart wouldn't let them, but I got banks and places <laughs> like that. Or near a power pole. And yeah. I don't know, frankly, I need I should check back in with them. But if you want to, check out check him out. Reach out to him and ask him how that's going. Yeah, I you know it's funny you brought that up because that was an episode that I listened to and I got really excited because I already had this idea. And then I heard that episode, I was like, oh, wow, somebody's already doing something that's adjacent to this. And it sounded like he was already having a lot of success with it. Yeah, he's a maniac. He's a true yeah. innovator, full of energy. Yeah. You know, yeah. he does all this stuff and he's a full-time farmer. I mean, this I guy know, I is, don't get it. This guy is like, <laughs> uh, I love this guy. He is just yeah. a very impressive character. Well, anyway, I think we're up to our time now. I'd really like to thank Aiden Cotter for an extraordinarily stimulating conversation about, you know, kind of a lens on our food system around waste and efficiency and, you know, multi-level coupling of networks, membranes, constitutions, mm -hmm. a little bit outside of what most of the people are involved in the conversation they're talking about. So really appreciate a very fresh and, to my mind, pretty sensible point of view here. Thank you so much for having me, Jim. It was a pleasure to meet you and to have this chat. Audio production and editing by Andrew Blevins Productions. Music by Tom Muller at modernspacemusic.com.